Welcome to the Life in the Fasting Lane podcast with your host, Eve Mayer. Join Eve and her guests each week as they discuss how to live a healthier, longer, and more fulfilling life through fasting, keto, and low-carb feasting. Hi, this is Eve Mayer, and with me is... Levi Sauerbrei. And today, I am super pumped because our entire journey at Life in the Fasting Lane really began with my obsession and fangirl status of Dr. Jason Fung. And today, Dr. Jason Fung is our guest. Dr. Jason Fung is a nephrologist, which for those of you who are not brilliant medical minds, is a kidney specialist with a special interest in weight management and diabetes. He's the best-selling author of The Obesity Code, The Diabetes Code, The Complete Guide to Intermittent Fasting. Through his clinic, the Intensive Dietary Management Program, he has helped people lose weight, reverse chronic conditions, including type 2 diabetes, with fasting and a low-carb, high-fat diet. You can find him on Twitter at drjasonfung, that's Dr. Jason Fung, or on the IDM website at idmprogram.com. So Jason, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with us and letting me grill you with questions. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me on. So Jason, um, much like my husband, who I picked up online, I also picked you up online um, when I stalked you on Twitter after reading The Obesity Code, and you changed my life. So first of all, thank you for responding to me on Twitter. And I watch you online, and I, I kind of am amazed at how you keep up with responding to so many people. H- how do you do that, first of all? <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, it's just, uh, I can't respond to everybody. And, uh, but you know, once in a while you try and engage with the people who read your books and stuff. So that was just good, uh, good timing, I guess. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, if you check out Jason's stuff online, I find that a lot of authors rarely respond. And I like, Jason, when you get into conversations with people, oftentimes encouraging them and sometimes just plain disagreeing with something that they're stating. Um, why do you have so much guts to actually be honest about the way you feel about things and about how you scientifically challenge common thought? Why are you so damn gutsy? <laughs> well, I think it's just that I'm really blunt, and if things are not right, then I'm not afraid to say, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Because the thing about when you go to professional meetings and stuff, most everybody's very polite and everything, and it's like, you know, but you don't actually say what you think, which is that, hey, I think that's just wrong. Um, nobody ever says stuff like that in scientific meetings, but on social media and stuff, it's, you have to get your point across. You have like, you know, 140 characters, whatever. So you really have to say what you mean. Um, so if it's wrong, you just have to basically say it's wrong. So the thing is that I have no vested interest in the, the sort of status quo. That is a lot of uh, academic doctors and so on, they have built a whole career on low-fat diets or cutting calories or whatever it is or treating people with drugs and insulin, um, whereas I don't care. I, my job as a clinical uh, physician is just to get people better, and if the drugs aren't getting people better, then they aren't getting people better. Like, what am I going to say? Um, so that's that's sort of my advantage. I'm not sort of beholden to any any sort of interests other than 
um, the truth and to how people can get better uh, from a real world sort of standpoint, not a theoretical standpoint. See, the problem with a lot of academics is that they're more interested in being right than helping people because you know they don't treat people they write papers so all they care about is my paper is right even if people are getting more overweight and even if people are doing very badly on diabetes they don't care because they don't see them they only care that my paper says that you should treat people with insulin my paper says that you should uh, cut your calories and cut your fat well I don't really care about that because I don't write papers uh, and in my practice doesn't consist of writing papers, it consists of helping people. So that's sort of where I come from. That's why I say if I don't think that whole calorie thing is right, I say it's pretty dumb. Like it's just not, you know, it's not helpful in any way. We've done it. Like, you know, it's like I don't get it sometimes. Like, look, we've been telling people to cut calories for 50 years. It helps like 1% of people. So 99% of people uh, fail at doing that. That's sort of a standard, you know, if you ever look at the statistics of weight loss, that's sort of standard, 99% failure rate. It's like, why would you, you know, recommend a treatment that has a 99% failure rate? Like, don't you think you could do a little better than that as a physician? Yeah. So that's the whole point. It's like, you know, and, and I think that resonates with people who, who, who listen to that and say, well, you know, you know, if calories doesn't work, counting calories, cutting fat doesn't work, then we really shouldn't be doing it. But people are interested in keeping that sort of going because that's what their, their career is built on. Well, as a person who weighed 300 pounds after years of cutting calories, I can speak with very good authority that it is bullcrap. <laughs> um, Levi, you've never really been fat. No, I've, I've been up and down. I think Dr. Fung, much like yourself, you know, there, there are times where you, you get stressed out or you eat a little more, it's the holidays or something. And at the end of it, you find, yeah, the pants are a little tighter, but you know, you, you kind of just move the needle back the other way with a little attentiveness. But, but people like me cannot do that. There's, there's no little attentiveness. There's just constant failure and shame and feeling bad about yourself. So Dr. Fung, you, you've never been fat. Um, yet you have this killer understanding of what obese people are struggling with, not only physically, but, but how they're feeling emotionally. And I think you and I really connected about that, about the shame, about the constant feeling of you're just screwing up. You're not following what your doctor has advised you to do. Can you tell me your experiences growing up with food? Like why I'm curious, Levi, why didn't you ever get fat? Dr. Fung, why didn't you ever get fat? Cause I, I did. And it seemed inevitable. <laughs> Well, I think that, I mean, I went up and down. I was, um, you know, I, I wasn't very overweight. I was a little overweight as a child, but I sort of grew out of that. And then through high school and stuff, I wasn't really overweight. In my middle age, sort of in my 30s, I was starting to gain a little weight. And that's when I started to get a bit interested in that. But um, really, it's been the ongoing sort of obesity epidemic that just puts more and more people who I'm treating uh, sort of in front of me and then clearly over the last 20 years that there's been an increasing number of obese and type 2 diabetic patients so it's sort of what I see every single day and that's where you gain an understanding because it's uh, a lot of what we think about obesity is just so wrong because if you you know so my whole thing is that I think that the lot of the obesity epidemic was not 
individual people's fault. It was really the fault of a lot of bad dietary advice that we gave people. You cut your fat, eat a lot of carbs, and eat 10 times a day. I think that wasn't very good advice. I think that's the advice you would give if you wanted to get fat. And this is what happened is that people gain weight and then they really got blamed for it. And I think that's just really super unfair because again, you can take an example. If you have a, a teacher who has 100 students and one kid fails, yeah, maybe he didn't study. But if now like 70 kids fail, it's not the kid's fault. And to, to, to blame them for that is very unfair. And that's what we've done for a lot of um, overweight, obese people because we give them this such bad advice. And we know that it's going to fail in 99% of the time. And when they fail, then we turn the finger and point it at them and say, you have no willpower. It's like the whole obesity epidemic is not a collective loss of willpower epidemic. Okay. <laughs> It's like, that's ridiculous. Like, look at these shows, like The Biggest Loser and stuff. Like, these people are doing so much. And to think that these people have no willpower, it's like, have you seen them? They're, like, working out till they throw up. And it's like, those are people with no willpower? It's like, I should have no willpower like that. <laughs> and it's, like, ridiculous to make these sort of assumptions because what happens is that we make these character assumptions when really it was just to save the ego of some obesity researchers and people who thought that this sounded like a, this calorie counting thing was a great idea and therefore it should work, even though the empiric evidence shows that it's a complete failure. They save face by turning around and pointing the finger at those people who have failed, which is really just blaming the victim. And it's a very fair on it's a very unfair way and that's that's why i sort of feel very badly for a lot of these people because from my vantage point of what i understand about the science of it they're getting the real raw end of the stick um that was definitely my experience uh as a person who was a successful author and a successful executive and a successful mom and a successful kid a good friend i could work outwork anyone I could. I was very competitive and still am. I had more control and more hard work than anyone. But when it came to weight, when it came to health, I just thought I was a loser. I just thought I should be secretly ashamed. And for the rest of my life, I, I would just need to know that I was the worst. I was um, just an awful person, a sloth, uh, lazy, even though I was willing to do any diet or work out with any trainer or walk 60 miles in three days, very slowly, but walk 60 miles in three days and have every surgery, I just couldn't understand why I was such a loser. Um, and, you know, finding fasting and finding low carb way of eating changed everything for me after 24 years of trying. But I had, we were fortunate enough to get to see uh, Gary Taub speak. Um, earlier in the fall, and, and I didn't get a chance to ask him this question, but I think I'm going to start asking everyone that, that we interview this question, which is, we, we see, and, and I completely agree with you that the research doesn't support this notion of what healthy eating is or should be, um, but obviously at some point a study was done, and some of the studies were 60 years ago or, or even earlier, a study was done that said low fat is the way to go, and I, and we watched some information about how heart disease came to be the boogeyman that we were trying to beat and not a more holistic view of, of health. But I understand what you, what you mean when you say that the academics are trying to protect their own academic finding because that's how their reputation is built. 
but I'm curious when when they did the research initially, they obviously start they were scientists or still are scientists. They didn't set out to be wrong or to deceive people. So how how did we get to that point? How did we end up with such an ingrained wrong assumption about all of this? Once you do it for a generation, I understand it gets into the education system and now new doctors are being taught what old doctors believed and it's wrong being passed down. But how did we get research that told us that in the first place? Well, you have to understand that this whole low fat thing was really for heart disease and uh, it wasn't for weight because there wasn't a weight, there wasn't an obesity problem in the 70s when this whole low fat thing came down. Um, it was because there was a lot of heart disease. Of course, after World War II, so this is in the 50s and 60s, and of course in World War II, all the soldiers came back smoking like crazy, and the tobacco company said, you know, it doesn't do anything, right? <laughs> it doesn't cause heart disease, you know that, right? So people were like, I wonder what it could be. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, well, it must be the fat that we're eating. You know, the fat that we've eaten for several thousands of years um, because they didn't know what it was. So, but obesity was not the issue. That was not what they were worried about. That was not what they wanted to concern themselves with. So it's a hypothesis. And I don't think there is a, any, uh, you know, intentional deception or anything. It's just that some people thought that fat was really the problem and they wound up sort of more influential and they came to this sort of realization uh, they're able to convince the um, sort of government and so on that low-fat diet was a good idea but nobody cared really two bits about obesity because if, if you ever look back at pictures from the 60s and 70s like everybody looks so skinny and yeah. what happened of course is that if you have a uh, fat is bad for you then it has to be bad for like everything Right, you can't say that um, you know a, fat, a low-fat diet is good for heart disease, but eating all those carbs is going to make you gain weight. You can't say it's, it's a terrible messaging to say. On the one hand, it's really good for you in this way, and on the other hand, it's really bad for you. So, sort of by default, uh, the low-fat diet became the diet for weight loss too. Like nobody ever thought that was right. I mean, if you go back several generations and you talk to people what causes weight gain, people like, you know, sugars, snacks, and starchy foods. So that's what you should cut out. So it's the starches, the carbohydrates, the sugars, and constant eating that was, that was causing weight gain. That's what your grandmother would say or your great-grandmother. Um, but that all got thrown out the window and not intentionally. I think it just got sort of like, well, fat is bad for heart disease, so fat must be bad for obesity too. And then they came up with reasons like, oh, fat is more calorically dense. But nobody had ever thought that dietary fat made people fat. That was a sort of, it was a new notion, but it just sort of crept in there, um, sort of un, you know, unintentionally. And that's how we got to this state where people just sort of thought that, hey, um, dietary fat is really the main cause of obesity, whereas it never was really. Now we know, of course, that a lot of the data implicating dietary fat for um, for heart disease was never really there either. What happened, of course, and this is sort of interesting as well, is that uh, Crisco was this um, uh, crystallized cottonseed oil. So in the kind of early 1900s, 
cotton seeds were useless. It was garbage. So you want you just took the cotton, but then there's tons and tons of the seed. And it just all goes rancid. So somebody figured out that, hey, you could make cotton seed oil. And then they made Crisco out of it and said, hey, this is good for you. But it's like, okay, but we don't eat cotton, right? So why would you eat the cotton seed? Nobody <laughs> thought that. They just thought, hey, Crisco. So they cooked it and they promoted it. And it was super cheap because your, your feed you know your, your your substrate whatever you're using to make it is pure garbage like it's just garbage so you can take this garbage and actually make something and sell it so it's really cheap not good for you but it's cheap so then crisco which is full of trans fats you know starts going way up in the american diet so now you got trans fats and smoking and then you're wondering why is people having heart attacks and like, well, because you're eating tons of trans fats and you're smoking like crazy. Uh, of course, nobody knew that in the 70s. They just thought, okay, well, you know, it must be dietary fat. But there's a huge difference, of course. We know this now. But there's a huge difference between olive oil and trans fats in terms of heart disease. Trans fats will kill you. So, you know, and, and nobody denies that now. But that, that was sort of the history of how we got to where we were. But by the time... You get to here, nobody remembers the history of all that sort of tobacco denial sort of stuff. Nobody remembers the history that we're eating all this trans fat from uh, vegetable oils and Crisco. And so then it just gets passed on. And then it's like dietary fat, dietary fat, dietary fat. It is, you know, the devil. And then you get this, oh, yeah, you should eat lots of pasta if you want to stay skinny. I <laughs> wonder why we're not losing weight after eating all these bagels. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> You've been waiting to ask that question. Oh, I have. You're upset I've, you didn't get to ask it. I've decided I'm going to ask every, everyone we interview from now on, I'm going to be like, like how, did, how did we get here? Because I don't think it's, like you said, I don't think it's like a malicious conspiracy no. amongst a large group of people. I just think, you know, once it becomes conventional wisdom, it's really, really hard to overcome that. I mean, speaking of that, like, Dr. Fung, when you went to medical school, how much nutrition or diet education did you get? Like how much does a doctor typically get? Because most people are going to their doctor and asking them a question about should I fast or should I do low carb or what should I eat? And we're putting that whole decision in their hands. And I'm curious to know on average, how much nutritional um, education does the doctor get during his education? It's very little. So there's a, usually a prescribed amount in four years. I think you're supposed to get like 10 hours of lectures or stuff. But what happens uh, to me anyway was that those lectures were like uh, basically biochemistry. They're like metabolism of vitamin K or something like that. So nothing really, you know, very interesting in terms of nutrition. And then once you get out of training, so that's 10 years in, in four years, uh, 10, 10, 10 hours in four years of medical school. And then once you get out of that, you get sort of continuing education training during residency and so on. And out of that, you get like zero nutrition um, stuff. So you wind up having to learn everything yourself. Um, and that's a problem. So then what happens is a lot of doctors, uh, you know, they know that weight is a huge, huge health issue, but since they know nothing about it, they sort of pass it off to um, USDA recommendations, Canada Food Guide, so you get the food pyramid, and they're like, well, hey, here's the food pyramid. 
And then uh, the extent of knowledge in terms of uh, weight loss is like count your calories, you know, cut 500 calories a day. Not really understanding that there really is no evidence that shows that doing that actually causes weight loss. And we've done tons of studies over the last 50 years. We've just never been able to prove that that actually works. And uh, it's because it doesn't. So the, the, the data shows it, the, cl the clinical experience, that is the people who do the, these diets, yeah, you can lose weight for six months or nine months, but then it always comes back. Nobody keeps it off uh, long term. And then people say, well, it's just like that. It's like, yeah, but it wasn't like that in the 70s. You know that, right? It's uh, people weren't eating all the time. They were doing fasting. They were eating sort of less processed foods and so on. Um, so it's not like it's an impossible task. That's what everybody tries to sell you. It's impossible to keep the weight off. It's like it's impossible if you listen to the current sort of dietary advice. That's true. Um, but in the 50s, 60s, 70s, nobody really cared that much. It's not like, you know, you go to like New York City, like how many people are, are dying of malnutrition? Like it, it's not that there's no food. Like that's what everybody says. Oh, yeah, but there is no food. It's like, no. Go to California in the 70s. How many people are dying on the streets of malnutrition and, and mess? You know, how many are like, yeah, even they're dying of hunger and stuff? Like, nobody. And it's like, okay, well, then why are you saying that there's no food? They have food. They have full access to food. And if you look at records of how much they're eating, it's like 3,000 calories a day, a lot of these people. And it's like, that's crazy. How are they eating 3,000 calories a day? and still staying slim. It's like, it's because the foods they eat uh, were not so processed. They were like real foods. They didn't stimulate insulin to the extent and they didn't eat all the time, constantly day after day after day. Well, I, I eat a lot now and I am really excited about that. I mostly eat low carb. I eat a lot of healthy fats. When I eat, I throw down um, and, and it's amazing and I love it. Um, for people who are just listening to this for the first time, who are just researching fasting for the first time and are super freaked out about it and think they're going to die, which I totally thought uh, if I didn't eat for a few days, um, what is the one baby step you would say for someone to take when they're considering fasting? Let's say they're starting to they eat like six, eight times a day. They're considering fasting. What's the first thing they should do? I think you should start by cutting out all snacks um, and really trying to eat sort of real food that is, um, you know, if you eat bread or, you know, toast and jam in the morning, then you're probably going to be hungry at 1030. But really going back to sort of three meals a day with no snacks is a sort of a first step and then eating real foods um, so that you're not constantly hungry. It's, it's um, you know, that's sort of an easy thing to, to start with. Um, but it is something that is ingrained in us since, you know, right through school, everybody thinks you have to snack constantly. Um, so it is a bit of a change. Like it sounds like a simple step, but it's not, it still takes a lot of, you know, thinking about it and deciding about it. Well, I know we're out of time. I just want to thank you so much. I'm hoping you will come back on and talk with us some more. Um, we would like everybody to check out idmprogram.com. This is where Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos and their team help people who are considering fasting and how they do it and how they handle all of the issues. So check them out, idmprogram.com. Thank you so much for being here on Life in the Fasting Lane podcast. You can get more tips for fasting keto, low carb at fastinglane.com. And you can check us out on 
on Instagram and Twitter at Fasting Lane. Until next time, to your health and hotness.